just some 15 miles south of Chattanooga, there in the northwest corner of Georgia, there runs a creek with a harsh name. Indeed, its Cherokee or creek origin means river of death. That name was never more appropriate than in mid-September 1863, when Union and Confederate armies fought as if the entire war hinged on its outcome. In the end, it may well have, for all the circumstances that flowed from the battle's outcome. This is the story of the second bloodiest day of the American Civil War. This is the story of the Battle of Chickamauga. The last five letters of history spell story, and that's exactly how history should be taught. Numbers and dates have no soul. Such presentations fall flat, for history is alive and relevant. Welcome to Threads from the National Tapestry, stories from the American Civil War. This series will feature events and people from that period and will strive to make you feel as if you were there to show that history is indeed a story. It was late summer, 1863, and the Confederacy was in trouble. Lee and his army of Northern Virginia had been turned back at Gettysburg, and with the capture and occupation of Vicksburg, the mighty Mississippi rolled unvexed to the sea. With Union success in both Eastern and Western theaters, Washington City mounted pressure for more campaign success. Specifically, one to be conducted by Major General William S. Rosecrans and his Army of the Cumberland. Conversely, Richmond desperately needed a victory and hoped that Braxton Bragg and his Army of Tennessee might bolster sagging morale and revive hope for the Confederacy. The opening act for this military drama was staged in south-central Tennessee. A quick recap of the events in this area is important. One of the first major blows to the Confederacy was the fall and occupation of Nashville back on February the 25th, 1862. That occupation by Major General Don Carlos Buell was made possible by Ulysses S. Grant and Andrew Hull Foote who captured Forts Henry and Donaldson earlier in February of that year, 1862. The reduction of those two fortifications opened the Tennessee and Cumberland Rivers to Union invasion. The costly victory at Shiloh in April of 1862 and the captures of Corinth, Mississippi and Memphis, Tennessee in June foreshadowed the fall of Vicksburg in July of 1863. Central Tennessee was another matter. In late summer of 1862, Braxton Bragg was at the top of his game, sidestepping Buell's Union Army, which was in and around Nashville. Bragg, along with Edmund Kirby Smith's Confederate force, drove into the border state of Kentucky. In early October of 1862, the Battle of Perryville was fought, and it was there that the native North Carolinian began what would become his signature. Throw a big punch, then withdraw before swinging a second time. His background deserves attention. Born in 1817 in Warrington, North Carolina, the 46-year-old general who graduated from West Point in 1837, was a poster child for chronic bad health. 
He was dyspeptic and suffered from dysentery and bad headaches. Add reoccurring signs of mental and emotional collapse, and all contributed to a raging temper and lapses of concentration. And then, the fact that he was a strict disciplinarian meant that his combined personal package negatively affected his leadership and the relationship with his men. As to strategy, it was said that Bragg would never get to heaven, for when he got there, he would immediately fall back. And so, as the troubled general withdrew from Perryville, Kentucky, back into Tennessee, Washington City pushed Buell to pursue. He proceeded to fuss and give chase half-heartedly. By late autumn of 1862, Washington had had enough. Buell was relieved of command and in his place ascended Major General William S. Rosecrans. Nicknamed Old Rosie, the native Ohioan possessed great energy. He worked late and often kept his staff up at all hours discussing topics, often religion, which was logical since he was a devout Roman Catholic. In battle, he was given to excitement, and like his counterpart, Bragg, possessed a short fuse. Impatient, he gave too many orders and under stress stammered. He implicitly trusted his subordinates. And, like his predecessor, Buell, he too could be deliberate. But with Secretary of War Stanton and the President's prodding, he and the Army of the Cumberland confronted Bragg's army at Murfreesboro, Tennessee. The Battle of Stones River was fought December 31, 1862, and January 2, 1863. It was a bloody affair and inconclusive. True to form, Bragg ordered his Army of Tennessee to fall back to the southeast and by doing so left the town in federal hands. In the battle's aftermath, both governments, with great irritation, watched the two, separated by no more than 30 miles, shadowbox from January to June of 1863. In the meantime, in an effort to relieve the Unionists that lived in eastern Tennessee, the president approved the command of Major General Ambrose Burnside, who took over the 24,000-man Army of the Ohio. His objective? Knoxville, Tennessee. For Rosecrans, Chattanooga, which was 80 miles to the east of the Army of the Cumberland. Though only a town of some 3,500 people on the Tennessee River, the site was one of the war's most strategic, for several of the South's most important rail lines intersected there or nearby, the Memphis and Charleston, the Western and Atlantic, and East Tennessee and Georgia railroads. The issue was getting Rosecrans to move. By the spring of summer of 1863, he seemed to think that by holding Bragg in place with his army's presence at Murfreesboro, he aided Grant in his campaign to capture Vicksburg. Rather, Washington City wanted him to move against Bragg, but Rosecrans resisted. Numbers were not an issue for reinforcements from Kentucky pushed the Union Army of the Cumberland strength up to 70,000. Then, Bragg had only about 40,000. When, by mid-June of 1863, Rosecrans still had not moved, General-in-Chief Henry Halleck wired 
I deem it my duty to repeat to you the great dissatisfaction felt here at your inactivity. On June 16th, another wire from Halleck. It read, Is it your intention to make an immediate move forward? A definite answer, yes or no, is required. Rosecrans' response was almost insubordinate. If immediate means tonight or tomorrow, no. If it means as soon as all things are ready, say five days, yes. Five days later, a bristling Washington learned Rosecrans had not moved. But three days later, a wire arrived from Tennessee. Dated June 24th, Rosecrans wrote, The Army begins to move at 3 o'clock this morning. And on that same day, Burnside and his Army of the Ohio began its push for Knoxville. As Rosecrans' army lurched forward, this was its organization. His Army of the Cumberland again numbered some 70,000 and was made up of four infantry corps. His 14th Corps was under native Virginian Major General George H. Thomas. Pap, our old slow trot, was methodical, loyal, and unlike Rosecrans, self-controlled and cool under fire. The 20th Corps was under Major General Alexander McDowell McCook. The former instructor of tactics at West Point was one of the fighting McCooks of Ohio. His father was Major Daniel McCook, and between he and an Uncle John, nine sons served in the Civil War. This McCook won promotion at Bull Run and Shiloh and did well at Brigade and Division Command, but as a Corps commander, he quite frankly was in over his head. The 21st Corps of the Army of the Cumberland was under Major General Thomas L. Crittenton, like McCook, he was well-known for his profanity. He was also well-known for blowing his own horn. A lawyer by training, he was the son of Kentucky Senator John Jordan Crittenden, who tried to save the Union back in late 1860 and early 1861. A brother, George Bibb Crittenden, was a Confederate Major General early in the war. As a corps commander, this Crittenden vacillated when making decisions. In fact, most were made for him by others. Rosecrans' Reserve Corps was placed under Major General Gordon Granger. Unlike Crittenden, the 48-year-old Granger had little problem about making decisions and was quick to express an opinion on anything. In battle, he was keen alert, and generally made good decisions. But he did have two faults. He loved artillery and could not resist the temptation to dismount in the middle of battle to help sight a field piece. And secondly, his personality was such his men despised him. Though Granger had above average ability, he was his own worst enemy. He just didn't know when to shut up as evidenced by the fact that by now he had managed to alienate Grant, William Sherman, and even the easy-going Thomas. The force that awaited them, Bragg's Confederate Army of Tennessee, well, its organization, the ordained Episcopal minister and bishop, Lieutenant General Leonidas Polk, led a corps. 
Born in Raleigh, North Carolina in 1806, he and Jefferson Davis were classmates at West Point. A second cousin to the 11th President of the United States, James Knox Polk, he moved to Tennessee where, after resigning his military commission, became a planter. He also entered the Episcopal ministry and became the denomination's missionary bishop of the Southwest. Of his relationship with Bragg, Polk thought his commanding general, as he put it, a poor, feeble-minded, irresolute man of violent passions, and so wanted a new leader for the Confederate Army of Tennessee. That opinion was shared by many of that Army's division commanders, men like Patrick Claiborne, Benjamin Franklin Cheatham, and John C. Breckinridge. Not a good sign for this Confederate Army as it prepared to give battle. Another corps was headed by Lieutenant General Daniel Harvey Hill. Though a fighter, he was acerbic. He spoke his mind. That in part was why, in the fall of 1862, Lee had shuttled him off to the Western Theater. Another corps commander was Major General Simon Bolivar Buckner. He had surrendered Fort Donelson in February of 1862 when no one else would take the responsibility. A reserve corps of Confederate infantry was under 46-year-old Georgian Major General William H.T. Walker. There was a cavalry corps, and it was under the Wizard of the Saddle Brigadier General Nathan Bedford Forrest. And this mounted element joined Bragg's existing cavalry, which was led by 27-year-old Major General Joseph Wheeler. These officers and their men now confronted the long-delayed federal advance. Washington City was pleased for that advance, but Mother Nature had her say. For as the Army of the Cumberland moved, the heavens opened. It rained for 17 straight days, and as one observer put it, it was no Presbyterian, but Baptist rain. Roads turned into soup. An artilleryman said the guns in his unit traveled not on the roads, but under them. Yet, the deluge slowed, but did not stop Rosecrans' advance. The same rain also soaked the Confederate Army of Tennessee, which was based at that time in Tullahoma, Tennessee. One wit there reasoned that Tulla must be Greek for mud, and Homa meant more mud. On July the 1st, despite the bad weather, Rosecrans outmaneuvered Bragg, and fearing he would be cut off, the Confederate commander ordered his army's retreat to Chattanooga. By the 3rd, Rosecrans was in Tullahoma. His nine-day campaign, despite the wet weather, one of the brilliant planning and execution. And yet, once in Tullahoma, Rosecrans dawdled again. Elation in Washington lasted three days. On the 7th of July, a telegram reached Rosecrans, not from General-in-Chief Halleck, but from Secretary of War Edwin Stanton. It read, Lee's army overthrown, Grant victorious, you and your noble army now have the chance to give the finishing blow to the rebellion. Will you neglect the chance? Rosecrans fired back. You do not appear to observe the fact that this noble army has driven the rebels from middle Tennessee. 
I beg in behalf of this Army that the War Department may not overlook so great an event because it is not written in letters of blood. That set the tone for communications that followed. Stanton insistent, Rosecrans adamant. The Union commander refused to move until he was prepared for crossing mountains and a deep river maintaining his supply line back to Nashville, and protecting his flanks. Finally, on August the 16th, after six weeks in Tullahoma, not only Rosecrans but Burnside's army both moved on their objectives. When they did, yet again, Bragg was caught off guard. With Crittenden's 21st Corps on the left, Thomas's 14th in the center, and McCook's 20th on the right, 50,000 men advanced on a 50-mile front. Supported by 200 guns, they were screened by 9,000 Federal cavalrymen. Five days later, by August the 21st, Bragg was aware that the Union Army was moving in force toward him, but he wasn't sure of its main thrust. And in addition, his army, plagued by desertion and illness, was now down to some 30,000 men. He pleaded with Richmond for reinforcements and was promised men from Joseph E. Johnston's army in Mississippi and from Lee's army in Virginia. As the month of September began, once again, Rosecrans threatened Bragg's rear and Bragg once again outmaneuvered and his communications threatened, withdrew south into Georgia on September the 7th from the strategic prize that was Chattanooga, gave the town up without a shot fired. Rosecrans was giddy. He should have been, for he had essentially cleared Tennessee of Confederate presence at a cost of only 84 dead and 476 wounded. On the 9th of September, he telegraphed Halleck, Chattanooga is ours without a struggle, and East Tennessee is free. And like a shark, Rosecrans sensed blood in the water and so posted orders for full pursuit of Bragg's retreating force. In doing so, he scattered his corps. One, Thomas's 20,000-man 14th Corps, drove into McLemore's Cove, which proved to be a site isolated from the Army's other corps. Rosecrans pushed his men, believing Bragg was in full dispirited retreat. But if Bragg did anything well, he withdrew well. Not only orderly, but Bragg demonstrated that in this instance, he could withdraw with guile. Many Confederate deserters who were captured and interrogated reported to Rosecrans that the Confederates were demoralized. In truth, they were plants. And including locals, most had been carefully misled by well-briefed Confederate officers. And on top of all that, Bragg knew that Thomas's corps was now isolated in McLemore Gap. However, despite Bragg's orders to fall upon Thomas, orders on both September the 9th and 10th went awry, and fretting officers on the scene bungled their task. Bragg, as he should have been in this instance, was livid. On the 12th, another chance to fall upon an isolated Union Corps presented itself. This time it was Crittenden's 21st Corps, yet faulty intelligence, timing issues, and human error again— 
left Bragg in a rage. Twice, he had opportunities to fall on isolated federal corps. Twice, they were fumbled away. By the 17th of September, Rosecrans, now aware of just how close to disaster his army had been, was able to breathe a little more easily, for he had all of his corps come together at a location known locally as Lee and Gordon Mills. Yes, the risk of the enemy falling on one isolated corps was over, but not the risk of being attacked. And Bragg, aware that reinforcements were on the way, was itching to strike. Johnston's troops had arrived from Mississippi, and all the way from Virginia, men under James Longstreet would be on the scene in a few days. Originally, they were to have traveled west across Virginia to Knoxville, and then on the East Tennessee and Georgia Railroad to Chattanooga, maybe a two-day journey. But back on September the 2nd, Burnside's army entered Knoxville and so dashed that route. So down through the Carolinas and across Georgia, Longstreet's men went, a distance of more than 900 miles. No fewer than 16 railroads were used, and most of them with different gauges. Considering the battered Confederate infrastructure, it was nothing short of Herculean. To aid the transferal, the 12,000-man force traveled light and received something rare for Confederate troops. New uniforms supplied by North Carolina Governor Zebulon Vance. Interestingly, they were dyed blue. The move, however, was discovered. On September the 15th, Halleck wired Rosecrans that Longstreet's Corps was on the way, and in response, the War Department ordered Burnside's Union Army south out of Knoxville to Rosecrans' assistance. In the meantime, time ran out. The two armies, Rosecrans and Braggs, were now so close to one another that contact could not be avoided. In fact, they were separated only by a little stream, the Cherokee called the River of Death, Chickamauga Creek. A thoroughly frustrated Bragg wanted to throw a sledgehammer, and on the 18th ordered a Confederate attack on Crittenden's 21st Corps at Lee and Gordon Mills. He wanted to turn Crittenden's left, drive that corps into McLemore's Cove, and then cut off Rosecrans' line of retreat back to Chattanooga. Bitterly reminded of misunderstood orders back on the 9th through 12th, Bragg's order was unmistakably clear. The movement will be executed with the utmost promptness, vigor, and persistence. No matter, everything that could go wrong did. For example, officers marched their troops in the wrong direction. Times for rendezvous were muddled, and Federal cavalry blocked bridges that were supposed to be free of enemy presence. There was also another Federal presence there, at a site known as Alexander's Bridge. And for a while, they stacked up Confederate troops trying to cross the stream. It was the 17th and 72nd Indiana. 92nd and 98th Illinois. Men under the command of Colonel John T. Wilder, who armed his men with Christopher Spencer's repeating carbine. 
His men co-signed a banknote, each for $35, so they might be armed with that game-changing weapon, making use of a recently developed copper cartridge that combined primer, powder, and bullet in one case. The weapon fired seven spring-loaded projectiles in a matter of seconds. Wilder and his men would be heard from again in the coming days. One of the few things that did go right for the Confederates was late in the afternoon of September the 18th, the vanguard of Longstreet's Corps arrived. It was John Bell Hood's division, and they aided in driving Federal Cavalry and Wilder's so-called Lightning Brigade away from Reed and Alexander's bridges over the Chickamauga. Freed of enemy presence, Hood and Bushrod Johnson's Confederates poured over the creek, but few joined them. Bragg hoped his men would fall upon the left of Crittenden's Corps on the 18th, but in actuality, by the end of that Friday, fewer than 9,000 of Bragg's force had crossed the stream. That being said, they did cross during the night. By the next morning, Saturday the 19th, Bragg had almost three-quarters of his army aligned on the thickly forested west bank. Finally, they were ready to strike. And Rosecrans was ready to receive them. Without Bragg's knowledge, Rosecrans saw the dust created by Confederate troops moving the day before, and concerned about his left, not only extended Crittenden's left, but sent Thomas's 14th Corps around Crittenden to the north. Bragg was still under the impression that Rosecrans' left was at Lee and Gordon Mills. In fact, by the 19th, the Federal flank was now some three and a half miles farther north. Though Rosecrans was ready to receive an attack, he was not aware that most of Bragg's army was now on the west bank of the creek. It was around 8 a.m., Saturday, September 19th, the Battle of Chickamauga began in earnest with attacks and counterattacks dominating the Union left and Confederate right. And with calls for reinforcements from both armies, more and more troops were fed into the vortex of an expanding, entangled, and confused firefight. All morning, the fighting raged back and forth. Such was the intensity that at 1 p.m. Rosecrans moved his headquarters north to the house of a young widow by the name of Eliza Glenn. There, he was right behind George Thomas's right, and of course, his chief of staff moved with him. That officer was another Ohioan, Brigadier General James A. Garfield, the future 20th President of the United States. The consummate politician, Garfield, was filled with raging ambition. Peter Cousins, the author of This Terrible Sound, described him as a man whose loyalty to his commander was measured by how the association might advance his own military and political career. However, in one area, he definitely aided Rosecrans. Old Rosie, as we have mentioned, was given to excitement. Garfield was calming. He wrote crisp, clear orders. Also with the Army, Charles A. Dana, who had been appointed Assistant Secretary of War and who had specifically been sent by Stanton to serve as his watchdog for Rosecrans. 
even with his headquarters close to the action, Rosecrans was still uncertain as to what exactly was going on. And it didn't help that his maps were poor, and out in front and engaged, Thomas had his hands full and was too busy to explain what was going on, even though they were linked by telegraph. As the day rolled on, so did the fighting. Like rolling thunder, it pressed slowly south toward the Widow Glenn's house. At 2.30 that afternoon, Major General Alexander P. Stewart's Confederate Division plunged into the fight. His attack struck the Union Division of Brigadier General Horatio P. Van Cleve and sent it reeling back toward a site surrounding the Brotherton Farmhouse. That Confederate attack broke the Union line and in doing so seized the vital Lafayette Road. Despite one brigade taking 604 casualties in minutes, Stewart's men pushed on to the Glen Kelly Road and threatened to sever the Dry Valley Road, which was the route between Rosecrans Field Headquarters and Chattanooga, their escape to the north. It was there Federal Divisions under Van Cleve and Major General Joseph Jones Reynolds rallied. Forming in front of the Dry Valley Road, they made a desperate stand. Bragg was surprised by the way the day was unfolding. Despite the fact that he had yet to order a full-scale assault, he was aware the battle had had unanticipated intensity. Another way to express his concern? He had lost the reins of a battle that was spiraling out of his control. Thus far in the fight, he had committed units piecemeal. Many units waited for orders to attack, and did so impatiently. One belonged to aggressive John Bell Hood. He had been waiting for orders all day. A caged tiger. Shortly after 4 p.m., he took matters into his own hands. He aligned divisions under Brigadier Generals Evander Law and Bushrod Johnson and sent them in against the Federal right. They struck the division of a Union Brigadier General with a most unlikely name, Jefferson C. Davis. In all the shifting to meet Confederate attacks, Davis's two brigades had exposed its flanks, and Hood's men descended upon them with blood-curdling yells. It seemed as though a Federal rout was likely. Hood's men came so near to Rosecrans headquarters, the widow Glenn's house, that those inside had to shout to one another to be heard over the roar of battle. However, like so many attacks before, Hood's men became extended and without support were in danger of being flanked themselves. And that's exactly what occurred. Thomas J. Wood's Federal Division made for Hood's exposed left flank. Wilder's Lightning Brigade joined the fray with its Spencer repeating carbines and joining them an artillery battery. Attack broken, many of Hood's men sought shelter in a ditch along the Lafayette Road. Federal cannon raked it. One Union gunner recalled, The ditch was literally full of dead and wounded. And Wilder remembered, At this point, it actually seemed a pity to kill men in such fashion. They fell in heaps, and I had it in my heart to order the firing to cease, to end the awful sight. By late afternoon of the 19th, every federal division but two had been engaged. 
one of those two now entered the fray. It was the division that belonged to Major General Philip H. Sheridan. As Sheridan rode up to Wilder, he was preceded by a cluster of pompous staff officers who cried out, Make way for Sheridan! Make way for Sheridan! Sheridan's men did attack, but only minutes later were repulsed, dashing back across the Lafayette Road. It was too much for Wilder's lightning brigade, who now shouted in derisive amusement, Make way for Sheridan! Meanwhile, one of Wilder's men captured a uniformed teenager from Hood's command and hurried him to Rosecrans' headquarters for questioning. The commanding general hated to hear bad news, and this young man had plenty of it. Informed that he was from Longstreet's command, Rosecrans was incredulous. He wasn't alone, for no one in blue believed Longstreet was yet on the field. In anger, Rosecrans accused the young Confederate of lying, and so enraged that the terrified young man could not utter a sound and was taken away. When Rosecrans cooled, he had to admit the young soldier had told the truth. Back on the lines, darkness began to fall, and yet George Thomas warned his 14th Corps to be vigilant. It was good he did, for on the other side of the creek, Major General Patrick R. Claiborne's Confederate division was on the move. An immigrant from Ireland who came to the United States at the age of 21, he was one of only two Confederate officers who was foreign-born. And now, as twilight gathered, his men forded the cold, armpit-deep waters of the Chickamauga and after sunset descended on Thomas's men like a thunderbolt from a clear blue sky. One Confederate in the 18th Alabama tried to capture the moment later on. He wrote, it seemed as if all the fires of earth and hell had been turned loose in one mighty effort to destroy each other. Confederate artillery added to the nightmare. Filling the woods, each blast lit up the night in an unearthly spectacle of sight and sound. Claiborne's men stormed forward, and the fighting was hand to hand. They took three guns, captured nearly 300 prisoners, and gained a mile of ground. They moved until darkness swallowed them up, and to the ground they went where they bedded down for the night amidst the dead and wounded. That night the temperature dropped, and unfortunately for the men near the front, all were ordered not to light any fires. Like so many battlefields, far too remembered most the pitiful cries of the wounded. In front of Claiborne's 6th Texas, one Union officer lay groaning so piteously that the Texans could stand it no longer. Risking their own lives, several crept into no man's land and brought the enemy officer back on a blanket. To a nearby house they carried him and, against orders, started a small fire to keep him warm. Also, amidst the sounds of the bitterly cold night, the rumbling of wheels, ambulances clearing the wounded that could be found, and artillery pressing forward. There was also the sound of falling timber. Trees fell to construct breastworks. It seemed, indeed, there would be another day of violence in and around Chickamauga Creek. That night, Rosecrans called a council of war at the Widow Glen House. 
It had been a tough day. Although the Confederates had not completely broken his Union line, they had come close. All gathered believed Bragg would attack the next day and knew he was being reinforced. In fact, Bragg's army now numbered about 67,000. Rosecrans' army, some 57,000. The Union generals agreed to remain on the battlefield and to remain on the defensive. Thomas would hold fast where he was on the Union left. McCook and his 20th Corps would close up on Thomas's right, and Crittenden's 21st would be held in reserve. Throughout the meeting, an exhausted Thomas slept in a chair. Whenever asked to give his opinion, he would rouse himself to say, I would strengthen the left and then go back to sleep. Rosecrans agreed and sent him a division to bolster the left. Then, sometime after midnight, the meeting adjourned. Not far away, Bragg's counsel was far less formal. He met with Corps Commander Lieutenant General Leonidas Polk and a few other officers and then incredibly announced that in the middle of a battle, he would reorganize his army into two wings. The right, consisting of Polk, D.H. Hill, and Walker's Corps, would be commanded by Polk. The Confederate left wing, which included the commands of Hood, Buckner, and Longstreet's arriving force, would be placed under Longstreet. This, all the more amazing since Longstreet was rumored to be in the area, but had not yet made it to the field. Lee's 1st Army Corps commander in the Army of Northern Virginia, and now the commander of Bragg's left wing, was on the scene but not without some drama. He had stepped off the train at nearby Ringgold at 2 p.m. on the 19th and was stunned that no one from Bragg's staff met him. For two hours, Longstreet stalked the railroad platform, then with two aides who arrived on the next train, went to look for Bragg, who was some 20 miles away. In their attempt, they almost blundered into federal lines. But around 11 p.m., Longstreet finally found Bragg's headquarters. The general was in bed, but informed of Longstreet's arrival, roused himself, and the two talked for about an hour. The Confederate plan for Sunday the 20th was exactly the same as before. Smash the Union left and drive Rosecrans into the trap that was McLemore's Cove. Polk's right wing would attack at daybreak and the attack would be made in echelon, wave-like, right to left, north to south. Longstreet's wing would follow suit. Things immediately began to unravel. Polk had to track down all the commanders in his new command to convey orders for the next day. He was able to communicate with John C. Breckinridge and Patrick Claiborne, but D.H. Hill never got the orders. Polk assumed Bragg would pass along news of the reorganization and tactical plans for the 20th to Hill. It was not until near dawn when Hill finally learned of Bragg's orders for the daybreak attack. He knew his men could not go into battle on empty stomachs and so ordered them to be fed. He notified Polk that he would not be ready to advance for an hour or more. With a delay, back at Confederate headquarters, Bragg fumed. He could not believe that, yet again, his orders were not obeyed. 
He sent couriers flying. One returned and said that he found Polk reading a newspaper and waiting for breakfast. Bragg exploded and personally ordered the battle to begin. Daybreak had been the original order, but the Confederate attack did not begin until 9.45 that morning. It was Breckinridge's three brigades that began the battle. Two of them lapped around Thomas's left and drove it in on Union reinforcements. One of the regiments, the 88th Indiana, literally had to change fronts from north to south as Breckinridge's men swarmed in behind it. One of those Confederate brigades was led by Brigadier General Benjamin Hardin Helm, a graduate of West Point and brother-in-law to Mary Todd Lincoln and a man much admired by the 16th president. Most of Helm's command were Kentuckians. Their state was in Union hands, and they were in the Confederate Army, and thus their adopted brigade name was the Orphan Brigade. In their advance, they managed to advance within 30 yards of Thomas's Union lines, but the fighting was murderous, so much so that Helm went down with a mortal wound, ironically, from fire by Federals of the 15th Kentucky. For a brief moment, Breckinridge's Confederates did seize the road that led to Chattanooga, but they couldn't hold it. Thomas made it clear he needed reinforcements, but none came because the officer and his men, who was to relieve others so they might move north, never arrived. The tardy division that created this circumstance belonged to Thomas J. Wood, and when Rosecrans learned of this, he rushed to find Wood and in front of Piers blistered him. What is the meaning of this, sir? You have disobeyed my specific orders. By your damnable negligence, you are endangering the safety of the entire army, and by God, I will not tolerate it. Move your division at once, as I have instructed, or the consequences will not be pleasant to yourself. Seething, Wood said nothing, and quickly relocated his division. Therefore, freeing the men of Major General James S. Negley, to move to Thomas's embattled men. As they moved to the north, the next in the Confederate line of wave-like attack now poured in. It was Claiborne's division. They pushed forward through a pine thicket when suddenly Federals behind breastworks opened on them with rifled musket volleys and canister. Men in butternut and gray were staggered, and Claiborne's attack went to the ground. Now, Polk committed Walker, and Major General Benjamin F. Cheatham's Confederate divisions, but both were stopped by Federals behind more formidable breastworks. With the Confederate attacks coming in waves, Thomas's call for reinforcements were constant, and consequently, Rosecrans continually stripped his right to reinforce his left. About 10.30, one of Thomas's staff officers, Captain Sanford Kellogg, returned from headquarters with alarming news. Passing along the federal front, he noticed a gap near the Union Center, presumably at a point where a division had been pulled to reinforce Thomas. A staff officer reported the hole to Thomas. It was between the division of Wood and just to the north, the division of Major General Joseph J. Reynolds. 
Thomas immediately informed Rosecrans, and the commanding general reacted instantly. He sent a message for Wood to close up on Reynolds as quickly as possible. Wood was puzzled, for he knew there was no gap. The division of Brigadier General John M. Brannan was between he and Reynolds, although it was drawn back into the forest and evidently was not seen by Captain Kellogg. Nonetheless, Wood was not about to incur the wrath of Rosecrans again. Remarking to those around him that he was glad the order was in writing, he tucked it into his pocket notebook and some say before doing so, waved it before his staff and said, Gentlemen, I hold the fatal order of the day in my hand and would not part with it for $5,000. With that, he began to move his division as ordered behind Brannon so he could join up with Reynolds. Around 11.30, Rosecrans ordered another division from its reserve position to take Wood's place. Two more Union brigades in motion from south to north and all to aid Thomas. And to make clear, two divisions and a part of a third were now in motion and all that created a quarter-mile gap in the Union line when before there had been no such thing. And then, at that exact moment, by absolute blind, dumb luck, a moment that would force time to stand still, an event that would be forever riveted into the memory of every man who was there that day. James Longstreet unleashed three Confederate divisions, and all were aimed precisely at the gaping hole in the Union line. 23,000 men, a veritable sea of butternut and gray, poured across the Lafayette Road and streamed across the fields of the Brotherton Farm. The Union right went to pieces. As that Confederate wave crashed through the Union line, Hood rode up, his arm still in a sling from his Gettysburg wound. Go ahead, he ordered Bushrod Johnson, and keep ahead of everything. Suddenly, a Federal brigade countered, and in their volley, Hood was struck by a mini-ball in the upper third of his right leg. Toppling from his horse, he was carried to the rear, where it was discovered that the bullet had broken his leg and it now had to be amputated near the hip. Though there had been a very brief Union stand, the Union right continued to give way. The better part of McCook's 20th Federal Corps poured rearward. The only one of McCook's units that offered resistance was a brigade commanded by Brigadier General William H. Lytle, who was then a popular author and poet. With his line crumbling, he spurred his horse to the front of his line and shouted, All right, men, we can die but once. This is the time and place. Let us charge. The Federal attack was shattered from the moment it began and Lytle took a bullet to his spine, but he continued to ride amongst his men until three more Confederate bullets knocked him to the ground. Their commanding officer down, the few that remained fled. At Rosecrans headquarters, Assistant Secretary of War Charles Dana was napping when the most infernal noise awakened him. It was Longstreet's attack. He set up 
and saw the Roman Catholic Rosecrans cross himself, then say, if you care to live any longer, get away from here. A mile or so away, Longstreet was elated, but the battle was now taking a life of its own. Bragg wanted to drive the Federals to the south, but the Confederate attack had wheeled to the right, to the north, and Longstreet encouraged it. If Thomas's 14th Corps could be destroyed, so too would be the fate of the Union Army of the Cumberland. The only available Union retreat route was through McFarland's Gap, which led to a gap in Missionary Ridge, and the better part of five routed federal divisions were pouring through that narrow opening. At the mouth of the Gap, Rosecrans and his chief of staff, Garfield, made an attempt to take a side road so they might reach Thomas, but Confederate forces blocked their way. So they pushed on through the gap for five miles, reached Rossville, where they stopped to assess the disaster. There was another road at Rossville that led to Thomas, but strangely, the sound of battle was barely audible. Both dismounted, put their ears to the ground, but could hear little. They sought information from soldiers that streamed past them, and repeated was the word the entire army was defeated and in retreat back to Chattanooga. Then, a sight that sealed their decision. Soldiers from Negley's division declared they had been shattered. When Rosecrans saw Negley earlier, he was on his way with two brigades to reinforce Thomas on the Union left. So, Rosecrans reasoned, if Negley's command was broken, the entire left had to be defeated as well. Visibly upset and distracted, Rosecrans desperately wanted to join Thomas and do what he could do to salvage anything. He ordered Garfield to Chattanooga to lay out a defensive line and position the units already headed that way. And thinking of every precaution, he issued a long list of instructions. It was at that point that Garfield interrupted. He suggested that with all that would be required at Chattanooga, Rosecrans should be the one to return to the city. I can go to General Thomas and report the situation to you much better than I can give all those orders. Reluctantly, Rosecrans agreed and began to make his way north. He arrived in Chattanooga around 4 p.m. Severely shaken, distressed, he was unable to dismount or even to walk unassisted. His aides helped him inside a house where, once inside, he slumped in a chair, his head in his hands, the very picture of deep, dark despair. Charles Dana arrived soon thereafter and wired a grim telegram to Washington City. My report today is of deplorable importance. Chickamauga is as fatal a day in our history as Bull Run. However, several miles to the south, the battle was anything but over. Major General George H. Thomas, only vaguely aware of the disaster to his right and rear, was in the fight of his life. Due to his repeated calls earlier for reinforcement that day, he had units from three of Rosecrans' corps, about half of the Army of the Cumberland. The right of his line faced south from the crest of an elevation that ran out from Missionary Ridge. A part of that rise was known as Snodgrass Hill. 
named after a family that lived there. The whole elevation probably did not have a name, but quickly it got one. Horseshoe Ridge. One and a half divisions, Brannon's and a part of Woods faced south on the ridge. The rest of Thomas's line stretched north and consisted of the divisions under Brigadier Generals Absalom Baird, Richard Johnson, J.J. Reynolds, and Major General John Palmer. They faced east. To their rear, the escape route leading to McFarland's Gap, north to Rossville, Chattanooga, and survival. Around 2 p.m., word came to Thomas that troops were approaching his right rear. He thought, maybe Sheridan's division on the way. Indeed, it was reported they wore blue, but George Thomas was a careful man. Throughout the day, he had received reports of Confederates in blue uniforms. So in light of this information, he ordered a nearby officer to wave his Union flags. And they drew fire. The men were Longstreet's, and they were attacking again. Joseph Kershaw's South Carolinians pushed to within 40 paces of the Federal line before they were driven back. But they struck again and again. Next, Bushrod Johnson and Thomas Hindman's divisions launched wave after wave of assaults at Thomas's right and rear. When cartridges ran low, those defending up on Horseshoe Ridge rifled to the pockets of their own dead and wounded. A crisis was at hand. And that was exactly when help came from an unexpected quarter. All of Major General Gordon Granger's Reserve Corps, largely three untested brigades, had, as Rosecrans had earlier ordered, stood guard on the Rossville Road three miles north of the fighting, and I might add, did so with growing impatience. Earlier, at 11 a.m., the short, pugnacious West Pointer watched the mushrooming dust of battle to the south, and as the sound of battle and clouds of dust grew, Granger blurted to his chief of staff, Why the hell does Rosecrans keep us here? There is the battle! Climbing atop a haystack, he, with field glasses, stared into the distance. Finally, unable to stand it any longer, he cursed and declared, I am going to Thomas, orders or no orders. And Thomas, with three Confederate divisions pounding him, needed help. Looking to the north, he saw a column of rising dust. A second time, he and his officers wondered who approached. Someone then remarked that in the dust, he thought he saw flags with stars and stripes. Anxiously, the native Virginian asked, do you think so? Do you think so? A few minutes later, Granger was there in person, and the euphoria of fresh troops flowed from Thomas to every man in line. By this point, all of Thomas's units had taken heavy casualties, though it is estimated he had some 25,000 troops under his command that day. Only about a quarter of them were still in action when Granger arrived, and what they had done was nothing short of heroic, for since that morning, Thomas and his men had battled virtually every brigade in Bragg's army. And now, nearing the end of September the 20th, they were confronting all. Many raced to extend Brannon's line on the right where Confederates were trying to outflank. 
Green soldiers under Brigadier General James B. Steedman smashed Heinemann's flanking attack, but at great cost. Of 3,500 Union men, 20% were killed or wounded in the first few minutes of battle. By Longstreet's own estimate, he ordered a total of 25 separate attacks at the Federals on Horseshoe Ridge and Snodgrass Hill, and each was repulsed. One element in the stubborn resistance were the 539 men of the 21st Ohio. Seven companies of that unit were equipped with Samuel Colt's 56 caliber revolving rifles. They could fire five rounds as fast as one could cock the hammer and pull the trigger. Though slow to load, five shots could be fired by a veteran in nine seconds. Compare that to the Confederates using rifled muskets and firing three shots per minute. In five hours of fighting on the 20th, the 21st Ohio fired an unbelievable 43,550 rounds. A dazed Confederate prisoner exclaimed, My God, we thought you had a division here. One of Longstreet's last assaults was led by Brigadier General Archibald Gracie, Jr. Leaping over bodies of the dead and dying from earlier attacks, Gracie's troops clawed their way to within feet of the Federal breastworks where the fighting was hand-to-hand before Gracie, unsupported, had to order his men back. In the charge, the 1st Alabama Battalion lost nearly 65% of its men, while the flag of the 2nd Battalion was shredded by 83 Union bullets. Around 4 p.m., Garfield finally arrived on the field. He had left Rosecrans and Rossville with two orderlies and a captain as guide. Under fire most of the way, both orderlies had been killed and the captain wounded. Garfield's horse, badly wounded, bore him to Thomas, then collapsed. It was only then that Thomas truly understood what had befallen the rest of the Army of the Cumberland. Rosecrans had directed that upon Garfield's arrival, Thomas should retire from the battlefield. But the stolid officer said simply, It will ruin the army to withdraw it now. This position must be held until night. With that, Garfield dispatched a message to Rosecrans in Chattanooga. Thomas is fighting off the Confederates and is standing like a rock. Reprinted in northern papers across the country, the nation had a new hero, George H. Thomas, the Rock of Chickamauga. As twilight progressed, Thomas went to work getting his men away safely. That was tough as Confederate attacks continued and Federal units ran dangerously low on ammunition. The plan for withdrawal was to peel back the southernmost and work northward. Each division would march behind those still in line and head for McFarland's Gap. However, at 5.30, Confederate Brigadier General St. John R. Liddell's brigade of Arkansans and Louisianans suddenly attacked on the extreme left of the line, and the entire Federal position was once again in peril. Thomas was personally on the scene. He commandeered a brigade led by General John Turchin and sent them in in a furious counterattack. Their attack stopped Liddell's men and sent them reeling back, and in the process, 200 Confederates were made prisoners. 
one by one, federal units left the field and made their way north to safety. Finally, there were only three regiments left, the 21st Ohio and their Colt revolving rifles, the 89th Ohio and the 22nd Michigan. One of those with the 22nd Michigan was 12-year-old John Clem. Born in Ohio, he had enlisted at 10 with the unit. Initially a drummer boy, he had served with the unit at Shiloh, Perryville, and Murfreesboro. But it was after Chickamauga that he became a national celebrity. From the battle, the story emerged that armed with a sawed-off shotgun, which had been cut down to fit him, he shot and wounded a Confederate officer who was said to have galloped upon him, shouting, Surrender, you little Yankee devil! Other stories had him firing like a madman after his drum had been ripped away by a Confederate shell. This we do know. He was given sergeant stripes for valor and was awarded a silver medal. He would go on to fight at Atlanta and after the war made the Army his life. He served until 1915. And when he retired at age 65, he was a major general the last man active in the armed forces who had fought in the American Civil War. He is buried at the top of the hill near the Lee Custis Mansion at Arlington. But late Sunday, September the 20th, 1863, he, the 22nd Michigan, and the two Ohio regiments faced a new Confederate threat. Along the line came the order, fix bayonets. As Confederates stormed up the slope, Gordon Granger ordered a countercharge. So surprising was this Union charge that one regiment, with empty muskets and cartridge boxes, actually broke through the Confederate line. That being said, without ammo, the Union attack fell apart. But they bought time, although most were soon surrounded and captured. In those regiments from Michigan and Ohio, 322 soldiers were killed or wounded, and some 563 became prisoners of war. But because of their sacrifice, the very last federal survivors slipped away under the cover of darkness. Thomas and Granger succeeded getting their men away under the very noses of their enemy. No question, their withdrawal ate at Longstreet, but his men, quite frankly, were relieved the enemy was gone. When the exhausted men in butternut and gray realized they held the field, they began their rebel yell, which seemed to begin at one end of the Confederate line, roll like thunder down to its end, and then roll back. The sound engulfed the retreating Federals, and Lieutenant Ambrose Bierce remarked, It was the ugliest sound that any mortal ever heard. The federal retreat back to Chattanooga was grim. Though completely exhausted, Thomas gathered his battered forces and, expecting pursuit, made a defensive line at Rossville, but nothing occurred. Wing Commander Leonidas Polk got Bragg out of bed to report that the enemy was in full retreat and a real opportunity was at hand, but the Confederate commander didn't see it that way. He even found it hard to believe he had won the battle. Later, a Confederate soldier was brought before him. It was a soldier who had been captured by Federal forces but escaped. 
He testified that the Army of the Cumberland was indeed in full flight and ripe for pursuit. But Bragg refused to believe him and incredulously asked, Do you know what a retreat looks like? The soldier stared right back and answered, I ought to, General. I've been with you during your whole campaign. Now, in defense of Bragg's decision, his men were indeed spent. Losses had been great on both sides, and in fact, there had been more Confederate casualties in attack than Union in defense. In victory, Bragg suffered 18,454 casualties, and that included nine brigade and two division commanders. In defeat, Rosecrans suffered 16,179 casualties, and that number included seven brigade commanders. The River of Death had been aptly named, for in two days of battle in and around the body of water, the 34,633 total casualties made Chickamauga not only the bloodiest two-day battle of the war, the second bloodiest battle of the American Civil War. Back to Confederate pursuit, and perhaps another reason why Bragg chose not to pursue. Losses had not only been great in Confederate manpower, but in draft animals. It is estimated Bragg lost about one-third of his artillery horses. When one of his officers pressed him for pursuit, the Confederate commander asked, How can I? Here is two-fifths of my army on the field, and my artillery is without horses. Without sufficient draft animals to pull artillery and supply wagons and low on supplies, Bragg opted not to pursue. But that decision did not sit well with one Confederate officer. Nathan Bedford Forrest confronted Bragg the night of September the 21st. He urged an advance to the north and firmly believed it was not too late. He argued, we can get all the supplies our army needs in Chattanooga. Bragg refused. Barely able to suppress his fury, Forrest stormed out and fumed to his officers, what does he fight battles for? By the next day, the 22nd, the army of the Cumberland was safely back in Chattanooga. Bragg did eventually move but not before adequate defenses made Chattanooga a federal bastion, and that influenced what Bragg planned to do. He would occupy Missionary Ridge to the east of Chattanooga and Lookout Mountain to the west, which he did on September the 24th. From those two landmarks, he planned to lay siege to Chattanooga and starve Rosecrans into submission. As Bragg put it, we hold him at our mercy, and his destruction is only a question of time. It would not come to pass, for U.S. Grant would arrive, as would reinforcements led by Joseph Hooker and William Sherman, and in late November of 1863, Braxton Bragg's army would be routed from atop Missionary Ridge and the road for federal incursion into Georgia and to Atlanta would be laid wide open. Yes, after the defeats at Gettysburg and Vicksburg, the Confederate victory at Chickamauga rekindled Confederate hope. But that did not last long. Some two decades later, with none of his personal bitterness mellowed by age, 
D.H. Hill tried to capture the reality of it all when he wrote, There was no more splendid fighting in 61 when the flower of the Southern youth was in the field than was displayed in those bloody days of September 63. But it seems to me that the elan of the Southern soldier was never seen after Chickamauga. That brilliant dash which had distinguished him was gone forever. He fought stoutly to the last, but after Chickamauga, with the sullenness of despair and without the enthusiasm of hope, that barren victory sealed the fate of the Southern Confederacy. When next we gather, we offer a counter to the rendering of the post-war days of U.S. Grant. Spurred by the October anniversary of his passing, we offer an account of the last years of the man who sat across the parlor from Grant in the McLean House at Appomattox. I hope you'll be with us when we tell the story of the post-war years of Robert E. Lee. We take this opportunity to thank yet another for joining the ranks of those who are a patron for our efforts here at Threads from the National Tapestry. Chris Kennedy from Jay County, Indiana, thank you so very, very much. And in our Facebook account, we offer thanks to all those who have reached out to us with such kind words and particularly Dennis, Carson, thank you for words that truly make us feel that what we are doing is appreciated. This is Fred Kiger. Thank you for listening. This podcast is sponsored by Bob Grasser, Raleigh Civil War Roundtable's editor of the Knapsack Newsletter and the Roundtable's webmaster at RaleighCWRT.org. That's RaleighCWRT.org.